Welcome to the Prize of Possibility podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mitch Ablett. I have a strong belief that the greatest prizes in life are hidden in plain sight. They are the nuances, the nooks and crannies of everyday moments that are easily missed. Join me in these conversations with authors and influencers and researchers to miss fewer of them, to truly claim these prizes. All right, welcome everyone for today's episode of the Prize of Possibility. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Dr. Judd Brewer. So Judd, I'm gonna do my little intro of you before I let you start talking here. But uh, Judd is the director of, make sure I get this right. I'm gonna try and do it without looking at my notes. Uh, director of Research and Innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center. Did I get that right? Yep. Awesome, awesome. And I've known Judd for several years now. Uh, we've met up for lunch a few times. Uh, so um, we've also collaborated together on a project that we'll talk about here in a bit. But he is uh, a two-time book author. Um, I've loved both of them. Uh, his most recent book uh, was the New York Times best-selling uh, book, uh, Unwinding Anxiety which we are certainly going to talk about that and the themes and, and stuff within it. But Judd, but, you know, I'll just I'll kick us off. I'm going to ask you something that you probably have been asked a lot as you've been out doing interviews and podcasts and stuff. What got you into surfing? Because <laughs> <laughs> he's a surfer as well. He's a neuroscientist, a psychiatrist, and a surfer. So that's a neat combo. Well, I'm not very good surfer, I'll say. But <laughs> one thing was that uh, you know, as I a friend was suggesting that I, you know, he's trying to get me to come work at Brown University. He said, "Hey, if you come to Brown, I'll teach you how to surf." And I thought that was a pretty good gig. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. So um, he, you know, he gave me some basic lessons, and I have to say, it was surfing is is amazing in so many ways. One. You sit on the ocean, it's very meditative. Two, yes. if you're not paying attention, you're going to get clobbered by a wave. So it kind of, it, it encourages awareness, let's put it that <laughs> way. And the, and the third thing is it's, it's tremendously humbling. You know, I feel mm. like, you know, the waves are constantly changing. Just, you know, learning to read the waves, learning to catch waves, learning to roll with things as, you know, as the wave is changing when you're on the wave. You know, I just feel like this is going to be a lifelong learning journey for me where I'm not only learning, you know, something that is that is fun and it's something I can do outside and it's, you know, it's good exercise uh, and, you know, out in out in the ocean, but also something where I feel like I'm learning so much, not only about my body, but also about my mind, you know, like, yeah, not to freak out when I get caught inside a set and these waves are coming down on my head. And I'm, you know, my brain says, you know, starting to panic and say, yeah, you need to breathe about now. <laughs> yes, this is what's so cool. And obviously, I didn't plan it. But it's going to dovetail perfectly with the other stuff that I'm sure we're going to talk about, about, you know, mindfulness, anxiety, the brain. But I have to say, A, you promised me in the past you're going to help me really learn how to surf. So I'm going to put you to it on air. Yes, hold me to it. Let's do <laughs> hold, it. Hold, hold you to it. But I'll, I'll say, as you were saying all that, 
you know, kind of thematically as to what surfing has been for you, I immediately like went to my own experience of, and I'm a total neophyte uh, of martial arts and the, the training that I've had. Similarly, it, in, it encourages awareness or you're going to get whacked <laughs> either by a wave or by an opponent or the heavy bag that's going to come at you. Um, but it's inherently meditative mm-hmm. and, and it's giving you all the other stuff about showing up to your body and getting, you know, exercise and whatnot, but it, it, it teaches and lifelong you use that. I, I have a, a hope that I'm able to continue as a martial artist my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, may not be able to do spin kicks, still can't really do them, but, uh, you know, when I'm 80, but yeah, I think that's cool, you know, that the these pursuits can really dovetail. I mean, you and I are mindfulness geeks, but uh, it dovetails with all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love, I, I can see the parallels there immediately, but also just that that bringing together the body and the mind, you know, where both are essential for both of these sports. Yes, yes. So, so tell us about you know, this, you know, the story or the, the coming into being of this latest book and what makes that present for you. I've heard some of this story before because uh, <laughs> I lived part of it. The, go, yeah. go for it. Yeah. Well, I had lunch with this guy named Mitch and <laughs> we had talked about putting together a card deck based on some of the principles that I've been learning and studying in my lab. And then also seeing, I think we'd both been seeing in our clinics. So you know, I had been struggling with helping patients with anxiety because prescribing medication, you know, there's this, this term number needed to treat, which gives us a sense for how well, you know, a, a treatment works. And for medications, it's 5.2, meaning, you know, one in five patients of mine is going to show a significant benefit from a medication that I prescribe. And I don't know which one. I don't know what to do with the other 80%, with the other yeah. four. So. Yeah. You know, I've been getting anxiety about how to treat my patients with anxiety and had started looking at, you know, my lab had been studying habit change and we had some pretty good results. Like we had done the study with smoking cessation where you got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. We had developed this app called Eat Right Now and studied it and found that we got a 40% reduction in craving related eating. And somebody in that program said that anxiety was triggering her to stress eat and asked me to create a program for anxiety. And I was thinking, well, I prescribe medications, uh, but it put a bug in my ear. And I went back and looked at the research literature. And it turns out that anxiety can be perpetuated in the same way as any other habit, which I hadn't learned in medical school. Mm. And so I, I, it blew my mind. I was, you know, it was this big light bulb moment for me because I was thinking, wow, I never thought about anxiety this way. And I know something about habits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ding, ding. <laughs> yeah. So long story short, we created this app called Unwinding Anxiety, did a bunch of clinical studies, you know, one with anxious physicians, we got a 57% reduction in anxiety. We did a randomized controlled trial with people with generalized anxiety disorder and got a 67% reduction in anxiety. Wow. Wow. And at that time, we could actually calculate that number needed to treat, which was 1.6, you know, so so if, a, if an app could do a mic drop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be a moment. <laughs> So we were blown away by that and we could, you know, we could work out the mechanism and all of that, but all of this is a long answer to your short question. 
all of that led me to think, you know, I'm starting to see a trend where there's kind of like this three-step process that people seem to be following, whether it's in our research or in, in the clinic. And then, you, you know, it's talking to you about this at lunch and, and you'd suggest, well, let's, let's put together a card deck. And I thought that's yes. a great idea. You know, maybe we, we can articulate some of this in, you know, in a way that's helpful and accessible for people. You know, they can pull out a card every day or whatever. Yeah. And so I, I went on self-retreat uh, and you know, decided I'd done this once before when I, uh, you know, sit, walk and only write when I'm in flow. And yes. so I was like, OK, I'll I'll do some self, you know, self-retreat and I'll start working on this card deck. And as I started, sat down to work on this card deck, it was just like the spigot opened and just this book came out. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so I called my friend Mitch and I and I and I and I I hate you for this, by the way. Not that you went ahead with a book, but that 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 can work for you now twice. That you can sit down in a self-retreat and then a book comes flowing out as a writer. I'm like, that doesn't happen for me. How did that happen? I hate him. <laughs> well, the hallmark of science is repro reproducibility, right? So yes. You know, if I write a book in, in, you know, I think my first book I wrote, I specifically sat down to do a writing retreat to see if it could do it. Yeah. This book, you know, was really, it was supposed to be me starting to work on our card deck, but yes. you know, uh, such was the case that this, you know, it was kind of, it was, it was ready to be born, I guess, you know, yes. all, all the conditions were there. Right. So. So that's how the book came out. And then, you know, and after that, um, we had lots of material to put together our card deck. So you know, we got it. Yes. Yeah, we did. And, and, you know, I, as I read the early draft of the book that you sent me, I was like, I, I think this is absolutely what needed to unfold, at least to unfold first. Because the, the, you know, and I've now read the book uh, two, three, you know, two and a half times, you know, because in, in working on the, the card deck, I really wanted to, uh, you know, have all of the languaging in a very felt way at the fingertips to really help kind of create the, the very concise card deck practices. But I'm so glad that it unfolded as a book, Judd, because the, the way in which you've written it, it's unlike the vast majority of mindfulness books, um, but particularly mindfulness around a clinical issue like anxiety that is also about the science. I mean, it's the sweet spot, right? But you did it in a very like accessible personal way. You talk about yourself throughout the whole book. So I don't know that that would have come out in a card deck. And I, I think that's so important because, uh, you know, in my own clinical practice, a lot of people um, that struggle with clinical levels of anxiety, you know, they they feel very isolated, alone, pathologized, less than. Mm -hmm. And to have a neuroscientist, psychiatrist, best-selling author, and longtime meditation practitioner say, hey, you know what? Anxiety's been very real for me. And here's a pathway. That it's not a cure, but it just really can help. And that actually the data really supports that. So I'm so glad it unfolded the way it did. Well, I have to say one challenge that I really enjoy is trying to make science accessible for everyone. So not dumbing it down, 
but really, because dumbing things down, I think can amount to laziness on a scientist's part. Yeah. Uh, I think there's the challenge is keeping it at the level of the science, but being able to explain and articulate it so that anybody can understand it. And I, I really enjoy that challenge. And I actually feel like it's a responsibility for scientists to, as best they can, you know, challenge themselves to articulate science in a way that everybody can understand it. Because otherwise it, it gets wasted, it gets lost, it gets, you know, put away in bookshelves or books or whatever. Yes. So here, you know, it, it, was, a re it was really fun uh, it was, a, like I said, a fun challenge to bring, you know, the science that my lab's doing into, um, you know, stories and, and analogies and things like that, that, that make it easy for people to understand, you know, what the science is, but at the same time is, is pragmatic for people to really be able to, you know, take that and work with it themselves so that they yes. can work with their anxiety. Yeah, I, I think the accessibility is huge. Um, I how about this? You know, one of the things that I had kind of known it before, but I think the way that you had put it in the book really it did seem like an insight to me, even though I I, I had that experience. Like I, I kind of know that, but it really galvanized it, even as a you know longtime practicing clinician. The fact that uh, you very clearly articulate how anxiety is a habit pattern mm -hmm. versus what seems to be generally the case. You and I have talked about this before, but and we put it in the card deck and it's in the book. It is it is not something that should be viewed as like a given base feeling that is just part of the human condition. We should just accept it, deal with it. It, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. It's actually something that we learn to do and and that to me to really get with that personally you know that that's so important for me as mm -hmm. someone who's also struggled with anxiety at various points in my life say say what that what that means to you what you've noticed around that concept yeah so i think that so we can think of you know the common definitions of anxiety or you know this feeling of worry nervousness or unease but if we look at that, if we unpack it, or I love this term, if you double click on it, <laughs> let's double click on the worry. Yeah. Worry can be both a noun and a verb. Yes. So we can feel worried, but we can also worry. And that mm. worrying is a mental behavior, which was something that I really had to grok. It took me a while to really understand that. And it's like, oh. You know, just like I can eat food when I'm when I'm anxious as a way to yeah. distract myself, I can always I can also worry, and that worrying is really interesting because it feels it gives us a feeling of control. Right? Yes, a feeling of control. It doesn't give us control, <laughs> right? But a feeling of control. It's it, and even if we don't feel like we're in control, we feel like we're at least doing something. Yes, yes. And that's rewarding for our brains so that it feeds back. And so that the next time we feel worried, we start to worry. And then the two start playing off of each other. And then it's a mess. That's where that process can really get perpetuated and solidified as a habit. You know, yes. some people are even, I would go as far as saying some people, uh, and they've articulated this to me, they feel like they're addicted to worrying. Like when they're not yes. worried, they feel like they're worrying. They, they're worried that they're not worried. 
Yes. This is so, uh, to me, that was one of the pieces of your book and just your work that is revolutionary. Because I do think, even still, um, anxiety is viewed, worrying as a you know, component of it, as something that is inherent to being a human being. You know, that it's in the uh, Roy G. Biv primary colors of emotion. <laughs> and we should we should allow people. And you, you talk about in the book, it's like um, actually some people really believe that they need their anxiety. They can't perform well without it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's such a, uh, you know, here's my term for it. it. It's like an inner screw job we do to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Technically, it's part of a habit loop in terms of the behaviors of our of our thoughts. But uh, to me, I, I think it's it's absolutely crucial. And then in my, you know, what I would just say and be interested with your experience is when people can be helped to notice that loop of the worry mm-hmm. and that actually it gives something, but it's not really giving what they think it's going to give them. Mm-hmm. And then when you ask them, well, what else is in this moment other than that worry or maybe underneath that worry, then people start to experience what is more universal and Roy G. Biv, fear being a primary thing. And that's painful. That's uncomfortable. But it, it's like it was there, but it was covered by the, the worrying behavior. Right, right. Well, that so there. Let's unpack some of that. I think yeah. there's a lot to talk about here. So that yes. you know, because fear feels unpleasant, it's just like anything else that feels unpleasant. Our survival brain says that's unpleasant. Make it go away, yes. and the making it go away can come in the form of distracting ourselves by worrying. So we worry, which feels doesn't feel great, but it feels less bad than the fear. Yes. And then we focus on the worry, that becomes the shiny object. And so we get stuck in those worry loops. So that's one one thing I think that's important to point out. Yeah. Another is that we can become so identified with worrying that it feels like this is who we were, this is who we are. For example, yes. we had a, uh, this is when I was first developing the Unwinding Anxiety app before we even started testing it. Uh, one of our pilot testers wrote me an email. And so I feel like worry is deeply etched in my bones, you know, and she was, she was that identified with it. You know, it's like, I, I am a worry, you know, I'm a worrier, right? That's what I do. But we can start to see, I love this quote from Alan Watts, where he basically says, you know, ego, the, the um, self he believes himself to be is nothing but a pattern of habits, right? Yes. And so we can be identified with that, that worrying, like I am a worrier, and that perpetuates the process because when we're not worried, we feel like there, oh, there's something, you know, there's something different here. There's something wrong here because I'm used to being worried. And now that stepping out of the worry habit loop is like stepping out of what's comfortable, what's familiar yes, to our mind. Yes, yes. You know what? I, I, I can't help this as a, as a writer. When you were saying, you know, people identify with being a worrier, it's like their mind in the in the thoughts, worrier equals warrior. Yes. <laughs> and and the thing, and it can really, and I can definitely identify with that personally, 
in the past that the worrying I would do is mostly around social anxiety historically. You know, why did I say that? You know, what do they really think of me? They, they, you know, when I did that, they must have think thought I was a loser. Like over and over again, these thought loops. Mm-hmm. Spending hours when I would get home from school and like high school and stuff, you know, breaking down like chain analysis. Why did I do that? Mm-hmm. And you know, that made me feel like I, like you're saying, I was doing something. I felt like in some ways I'm a badass that I'm able to parse all this stuff out versus be a warrior, but in a, in a different way where you learn that that actually isn't serving you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I love that. How, how, what have you been, um, what have you been hearing from people as they have been encountering the book? I'd be super curious what that kind of feedback you're getting from real, real folk. <laughs> Not like well, me, you know, like real people. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Generally, generally speaking, I think the biggest, the most common comment that I've gotten is where people hadn't. So two of them, I I would say one is, I uh, at the beginning of the book, I I articulate all the different ways that anxiety can show up. You know, yes. so it can be generalized where people are not even aware of it. They can be so identified with it that they just feel like it's who they are. It can show up as panic attacks, you know, et cetera. And so just showing, articulating that it can show up in a bunch of different ways was really helpful for people. And it, and a lot of people said, you know, I didn't actually realize that I have anxiety but when you just highlight the key elements of it, and I look at my life, I can say, oh, yeah, that's actually something that I struggle with. Um, another element is the habit loop piece where, you know, I, I would say that's the most, that's been the most helpful thing for me as a clinician. And I think yes. reading the book, you know, kind of, you know, instead of going to see me as a, as a psychiatrist, they can read the book and, and kind of learn that themselves. And that's yeah. been really, they've said that that's really helpful just to see it as a habit right. where it do, they don't, they don't have to be identified with it and it gives them hope that they can actually work with it. And right. of course our research is, is pretty promising that you can work with anxiety, you know, which is, which is, I think gives me hope as a clinician. And I think gives a lot of folks hope as you know, folks who struggled with anxiety for a long time. Yes. So, so I, I'm thinking about pivoting us a bit because, you know, people can find lots of conversation, conversation that you and I have had that's recorded about like some of the basics of, of habit loops and anxiety and, you know, reward-based learning and mindfulness as a, as you talk about in the book, the bigger, better offer for learning to bust out of those conditioned habit loops. I'm going to ask you about some stuff we haven't really fully talked about, you know, right. kind of liven it up a bit. Um, I really have been, as I've been doing the work with you and then just in my own, actually thinking about these things prior to us collaborating around uh, the card deck. You know, and I have old notes I had taken around what I call like meta habits. Hmm. And I'd be super interested in what you would think about this. I view the the unwinding anxiety piece or the working with uh, habit loops around anxiety, bringing mindfulness to bear, learning to break out of the conditioned loops. It's kind of like a 
and that could be the case around depression, I would imagine. And, it, you know, I know from your work, addiction related behavior, mm-hmm. same process of habit loops. It's like we as modern humans in our society, we clutter our minds and our lives behaviorally with these mm-hmm. unskillful habit patterns. Yeah. And I, I use that word unskillful because it's, it's less judgmental. Than like you know you know bad you know habit. I agree. Yeah, it's like that feels like a crucial set of initial stages that you know you declutter your your life space from some of these habit loops. Mm-hmm. But then, particularly, and you and I are biased around mindfulness and meditation. Now you have these possibilities of new habit patterns. Yeah. So where my mind is going, I think you, you can see where I'm going, that can we actually intentionally set about a process of conditioning character, what typically is viewed as this amorphous thing that we can condition, you know, not that we're perfect and we're never anxious again and no, no unskillful habits, but we have the possibility through increased awareness, and I know I'm being long-winded, I'm trying to get there, of intentionally setting our sights on habit patterns around what you talk about in the book, like curiosity. Mm-hmm. I, or, you know, curiosity that can lead to behavior of creating. Yeah. Or what I call allowing, like a meta habit of allowing experience to unfold that can lead to a doing of uh, leaning in to situations in a disciplined way or compassion as a response to people's pain and suffering as a meta habit that leads to what you hear me talk about in terms of surprising other people, really letting them know I see you and what your pain is. So to me, that's like a process that we can almost plan to engage in that's like meta i i i love how you articulate that and you know it brings up this image of or this analogy of uh you know kind of our computer uh working memory like the hard hard drive you know and if we look at all the processes so you can you know click on your system whatever and, and a computer and you can look at all the processes that are running in the background yeah and i think habits are like that where you know, there are a bunch of processes running in the background. Some of them are helpful, right? The majority of habits are generally helpful, but it, I don't want to have to relearn how to eat food every day. You know, I, I prefer yes. that to be a habit. So it's kind of like looking, going through our list of all those background processes and checking to see, you know, it's like, for me, my computer, I'm like, I don't know what that one does. Oh, my computer crashed. Okay. I guess that was an essential one, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we can go through and look at our habits if we can be aware of them, right? So yes. it's like opening up that program. That's what awareness helps us do. Mindfulness helps us do this. It's like go through our day and look through, look at our, our behaviors to see, okay, here's a background process. Let's bring it to the light. Is it helpful? Is it is it yes. skillful? I think as you put it, is it not skillful? Okay, now I'm aware of it. And then when I'm aware of it, I can start to work with it, right? Because any habit is perpetuated the same way. So here we can start to work with like, oh, wow, let's clear out all the background processes that aren't helping 
so that it frees up our, you know, our, our RAM to be more efficient. And I think the analogy holds true for our lives. It frees up the energy to be able to be doing other things and learning new habits that are helpful. Yes. So the way to do that, you know, with a computer, we can just force quit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, it'd be great if we could do that with our old, with our unskillful habits. You know, yes, oh, it would. Stress eating, force quit, done. That's right. That's you right. Um, it, our brains don't work that way, but they no. do work. I think understanding how our brains work helps, and also brings in in this piece that you're bringing. You're talking about with prizing. So the way I think of this is, and I think you have a new book that will be coming out uh, that will be oh, talking yes. about some of this. Yes. So, um, so maybe you can talk more about this, but the, from a neuroscience perspective, our brains have this reward hierarchy where basically what we have to do is help our brains see. So like open up that list of all the background processes and then help our brain see very clearly which one is rewarding and which one is not rewarding. And if we can see clearly that it's not rewarding, our brain will do that force quit by mm -hmm. doing, uh, becoming disenchanted with it. I'll give a concrete example. So working with people who want to quit smoking, yes, I tell them to smoke, but I tell them to pay attention as they smoke because yes. what that helps them see is that smoking tastes like crap, right? I've never right. had a patient come back and say, Dr. Brewer, thank you. I didn't realize how great the cigarettes, you know, tastes and smells. No, that's like, right. I can't believe I didn't realize this 20 years ago. This yeah. is crappy. Yeah. So I read. Yes. Yeah. That's their brain doing the force quit. It's not yeah. like, I mean, sometimes people just quit cold turkey because they can't stand another cigarette. Yes. For most people, all it's a matter of just over time bringing awareness at each time they smoke so that they yes. can, you know, they can uh, become disenchanted. So if we can become disenchanted with unskillful habits, we can become enchanted with skillful ones. Yes. So yes. I'm going to, I'm going to lob this back over to you. Okay. But I would guess, and I, I'm going to do more than guess because we've done some research on this, but I, I won't go on. And I, I love actually, that you're practicing the curiosity right now. Yeah. And this will be audio. You know, people can't see he's rubbing his chin. Yeah. So go, go for it. Go for that's it. That's why I have a beard. Hmm. <laughs> so here, things like curiosity not only can help us start to see how unrewarding some of the old habits are, but the curiosity itself, and there may be other things related to compassion. I'd love to hear what you have to say on this that are more rewarding than beating ourselves up and judging ourselves, you know, yeah. doing that, that chain analysis and then saying, you know, bad Mitch, bad Mitch, bad Mitch, bad right. Mitch throughout the right. chain. <laughs> right. Right. So what, what do you think about that in terms of that prizing? Does that fit with the reward hierarchy of how our brains work? Yeah, no, I remember you and I talked about this, you know, now years ago around when I first told you about this concept of prizing, which I'm not making up. I, I think I told you I heard the word in this sense from a mentor of mine in grad school the first time, and he was prizing with me. And I think that's why it really got in. Uh, that it's not just around, you know, kind of contingent praise, like, hey, I like what you just did, the specific thing, do more of that, you know, good job on your math homework, you know, and it's not about like, you're so smart, like whole person, you know, this is all Carol Dweck's work around growth versus fixed mindset, which we don't have time to get into, but um, it really is something that I experienced and then had a word for it. And I think that's my whole point is, can we 
attach, because we're verbal creatures, can we attach intentionally a word to a process and then show up to that process more and more and then more options start to stick to it and it becomes a meta habit that like the one I call prizing, mm -hmm. which is instead of it just being that rare experience that most of us have had where like when we were kids an adult said, hey, kid, I see you over there trying or I see you stuck and in pain in some way. And I'm here and I want you to know it matters what I see you showing up to. And they, people can do that in infinite different ways. But instead of that just being something that's an isolated, like, wow, that was a powerful experience. And then we go about our life mm -hmm. that we can actually attach a word to it, a mm -hmm. concept that then it starts to be like, oh, that other situation was prizing. Or when I showed up to, to my kid at home last week, that was prizing. How might I be on the lookout for more ways to do prizing of others? Let them know, peekaboo, I see you over there. Can that become a meta habit? Can curiosity become more and more of something that we're on the lookout for? Oh, this is a, this is a situation where curiosity-ing, which there isn't a good uh, verb that I'm aware of for curiosity, um, that it, it can become something that we can galvanize it. So that's what I mean by like a meta habit. I do. I agree, obviously, that mindfulness is like a precursor. It is the ultimate kind of meta habit. It's not really a habit. It's like something you show up to. And yet it makes these other patterns much more possible, I think. Yes. Yeah. Well, I would say if we can't see our old habits that are getting in the way, Right. We're not going to be able to work with them. And if we can't see how good it feels to do the you know, kindness, curiosity, you know, prizing, if we can't see how good those feel, if we can't see that cause and effect relationship, we're not going to repeat them. So I, I would say awareness underlies all of these things. And, and I do believe, and that's the thing, I keep using the word believe, I have experienced that when like Sandy, my mentor, showed up to me in what I would call a prizing fashion. That was incredibly rewarding for me at the, like it was a lightning bolt. And then as someone who is, you know, I think shown up to prizing others, particularly the more that I've intentionally done it, it's like my main treatment plan at this point, that it is, it is, it is very rewarding. And yet it doesn't seem to have uh, side effects <laughs> that other, other uh, behaviors might have side effects, definitely like anxiety or smoking or any of that. So it's like, how can we help ourselves? And, and you know, I, I worry that it sounds too mechanistic, what we're talking about. People are like, oh man, it's like trying to turn yourself into a good version of the Terminator to like <laughs> program yourself. Well, so here I would say, you know, that's, that's just how our brains work. I think you're, you know, what we're having a conversation about is just understanding how our brains work. And so if that sounds too mechanistic, I'm not sure what to say to somebody that says that's too mechanistic. Cause I'll, you know, I, well, that's how our brains work. So it's probably helpful yes. to know that. <laughs> yes. Yes. And not, not let that thought, which I would argue is itself part of a loop. Mm -hmm 
that can be protective against going into an experience of something new, which for that person might be uncomfortable. Yeah. And so, so yeah, I, I don't know. I think this is a, it's something I've been, uh, as I've been unwinding from my own anxiety over the years, it never, there's no cure. I still get, you know, where my pocket of any social anxiety is, is um, if I'm in, this is so fascinating to me. If I'm in an audience myself and it's the Q&A section at the end and I do have a question that comes to mind and then it's like I would have to raise my hand for the speaker to boom, massive wave of anxiety, throat clenching, shaking, Thoughts start like I'm going to f this up. I'm, it's going to come out wrong. People are going to think I, it's so fascinating to me. I can be the person up on the stage and in front of hundreds of people and have very little experience of anxiety. But I think it's something about how many classroom environments I was in as a kid. I think where that social anxiety experience was so huge around getting called on. Mm -hmm or just being in the class and I'd have an idea, but if I raise my hand, I'm going to look like a jerk. So it's fascinating how that has a remnant in my brain circuits. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's, you know, old habits die hard. <laughs> do, do you notice pockets of anxiety for yourself that still show up? Even, you know, cause here we are like meditators and anxiety authors. Yeah. Well, the one that you mentioned is one that I certainly feel as well. And I was thinking, you know, an added element there is, you know, we're in a, a crowd of, you know, people that don't know each other. So, for example, it's easier for me to raise my hand and ask a question if I'm in a small group of people that, that I know or I'm in a, you know, focus group or something like that. But suddenly when it's with a bunch of strangers, you know, there's all this, you know, there are tons of things going on there where it's like, you know, what will they think of me? Just like you're talking about, right? But I think that can be exemplified by you know, having previous classroom experiences where yes. the raising the hand didn't go so well or, or was perceived to not go so well, even if everybody else is like, you know, asleep at their desk. You know, yes. Anyway. Yes. Do you, just so that there's a little bit of practical in here, like what, what do you do yourself in those moments and i can say what i try to do in those moments like what's your quote unquote practice whether it's in the book or in the deck or not i mean what do you yeah what do you do? well it's you know often and i'm thinking recently because because of the last year there has, haven't been a lot of um times when i've been in an audience asking q a but i can say i felt panic at times when i've been in the ocean you know um mm when waves were, you know, coming down on my head, you know, constantly and, you know, bigger surf. And at those times, noticing my brain starting to panic and just naming that, oh, starting, you know, thoughts of panic to yes. just to help my brain not get totally sucked, pulled out to sea, so to speak. Yeah. By those, by those thoughts where the panic is, the worst thing that I can be doing when I'm in the middle of the ocean and getting clobbered by waves, I need to be right. focused on getting, you know, beyond the wave or in this, you know, one way or the other in a place where I can consistently breathe. 
Yes. Panic does not help that at all. Right. <laughs> so, right. So naming that and then just seeing that clearly helps that help my brain click into the, oh, this is what I need to do mode. Yes. And so that piece has been really helpful. And I also say with Q&As, you know, in the past, it's been helpful just to kind of ground myself, you know, with feeling, you know, breathing exercise, feeling my feet, feeling my body, something like that's a great way to kind of ground the physiology in the same way of uh, noting those panic thoughts when I'm in the ocean. But I'm curious yes. what you do. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I put this one down. What I have, what I remember doing, and I, I, I tried to create something for myself that was very, very accessible. And I also haven't been in a and a in an audience. I hope to be soon where I'm in the audience. Um, but I've been in many difficult conversations and, you know, recently where I'll uh, try uh, somehow be cued that, oh, I'm having this reaction, which is itself cool. Mm -hmm. you know, it used to be I never had any awareness. I think that's the years of practice, you know, that allow just like, meditation in general your mind goes away from the breath your brain learns no come back come back to now and yeah right yeah. so similarly oh you're you're you've gone away into anxiety land so i'll like ball my fist up i'll be on a zoom call or you know even live with somebody and i'll bring all of that tension into my fist hmm. and just kind of breathe in for a second deeply and then exhale it and open my hand and i'll glance down at my hand Oh, there's the movie of anxiety on my hand. Yeah. There's that old movie on that screen. I know you. I know how this plays out. And and then you know, that could be like one breath, super accessible. And I actually uh, heard this, uh, read this in a book by uh, the guy that was the personal coach for uh, Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. Tim Grover has a cool book out. I'm going to plug it right now, Winning. And uh, he has a quote in there from all of his years coaching these, you know, obviously awesome performers. You know, don't think, execute. And I, I think that sounds awesome, but how do you actually do that? I think what what we're talking about is how you do that. You notice that you're having that reaction, that you're getting mindy with your thinking. And then you find a way to come back into your body and basically give yourself permission to execute. Get, yeah. You're on the board, dude. Execute. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Because our, our thinking brains are not only slow, so in sports, that's critical. Yes. But they're also often misguided you know so you some slow misguided you know you don't want you don't want that person on your mental team so right. don't think execute i love it yes yeah and, and so that that's kind of you know i think that's that that is so important because it crosses domains of content lots of different situations that applies versus you have to have something specific for a specific strategy for at work or at home like right now you know what's the thing to execute be do so awesome listen judd I, always very very awesome to chat with you i i hope we talk about some things that you haven't talked about a thousand times as you've been talking about your book and whatnot lately 
um, you know, wanted to have us get into some stuff that I know I would be interested in. So hopefully this was alive for you to some degree. It was. Yeah, it yeah. was great. Yeah. So, so Judd, where, where can people go? You know, what's your, I don't have your website in front of me. Where, where can people go to learn more about you, your work, your book and whatnot? Yeah, it's uh, drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D.com. I'm also on Twitter at Judd Brewer, J-U-D-B-R-E-W-E-R, and on Instagram, dr.jud. So uh, the website's the, the place that has all the information on the book, the apps, and our new card deck. That's right. So obviously, folks, you know, I, I highly endorse Judd's stuff. We've collaborated together. We have uh, something together, but... I think you can tell he's just an awesome dude. He's like the real package where he does the science, he does the meditation, he does the writing, and he surfs as well. You know, so <laughs> so you know, check out uh, Judd's work. But thank you, Judd. Awesome to hang out with you a bit. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of The Prize of Possibility. I hope you found things of benefit here. If so, please consider giving this show a positive review. Such feedback is not only great to hear, um, it also really helps elevate the show so that others can find benefit from it. Please stay tuned. More episodes, some great guests on the way so that we can together discover these true life prizes in daily life. Take care.